This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Welcome to the Sunday morning edition of Daily Thunder, which is, for all practicality, our Sunday service uh, here on the campus. <coughs> I have uh, a really exciting to me, I don't know if it'll be exciting to you, but exciting to me, it's a series that I'm going to be unfolding. I don't know how long it's going to be. Right now I have about... Uh, six or so messages already done and mapped out, but I have about 20 to 30 sketched. So I may or may not go through all those. I may end up combining quite a few, but uh, it's, I'm calling it spiritual lessons from World War II, which can be a little uh, uncomfortable for some of us. Uh, some of us have a tendency to really like war, and we think it's great. And then we have others that... Uh, especially because of maybe even our spiritual heritage, the idea of war is evil inherently. And uh, that's, that's a difficult one when you bring up and you do a whole series on World War II. I happen to be very fascinated in uh, war history, but not because I want to pick up a gun and shoot someone. I have very little desire uh, towards violence. I don't have a natural instinct to bop people in the nose. or I'd, And so this isn't necessarily a, an interest for me personally, like I desire to go to war, I desire our nation to go to war. Actually, I have no such desire. But I'm extremely fascinated by how spiritual and physical warfare overlap with each other and how they work. Because as I study physical warfare, I used to teach the Civil War. Uh, I've spent a lot of time studying World War I and World War II. Uh, as I've studied that, I recognize so much similitude, similarity between physical warfare and spiritual warfare. And there's, it's God himself that is going to take the ideas of physical warfare and say, hey, there's a spiritual battle. And it's similar to this. The same way you need weapons for this battle, you need weapons for a spiritual battle. The same way the enemy is seeking to devour and conspiring and scheming is the same way that your enemy is doing that. And so as a result, there is a need for a watchfulness, an unguardedness, a vigilance. In, you know, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes is going to say that there's a time for peace and there's a time for war. And for many of us as Christians, we'd say there's just a time for peace. There isn't a time for war. And it's interesting because when you study World War II, you're going to see that there was a significant movement even within the church towards peace. Uh, after World War I, which concludes in 1918, you're going to have a movement. Uh, it is a desire, a craving within the cultures of Great Britain and France specifically, and the United States though, which is just saying never again. In fact, that was their motto, never 
again will we go to war like that. We do not want war. We would rather do anything, pacify any enemy, than ever go to war again. And so what you're going to see is a great peace movement. And in the church, the church was one of the leaders of this great peace movement. And for all practical purposes, I'm a big fan of it too. So why wouldn't we sponsor a peace movement and say, hey, no more war. I'm all for it. However, as Solomon says, there's a time for peace and there's a time for war. And this is the interesting spin that I'm going to start with. Here's a guy. I have no fascination with war personally. Like, I desire to go off and fight, like I said. However... I am a firm believer that there is a time when it is actually righteous, noble, honorable, and good to fight, to stand up. If there is an evil that is perpetrating evil on weaker parties, what should the strong parties do that have the capacity and have the ability to do something to stop it? It's a tension point within the church because the, the, uh, the ideas of non-resistance have crept in through the church the ideas of violence and do, do damage to whoever would dare stand against truth. You have extremes on both sides to the point we oftentimes fail to recognize that there is a time for peace and there is a time for war. In your soul, there is a need for you to recognize that you cannot be passive with the enemy that is engaged against us. And so there are some rich uh, truths that can come out of World War II. I am... As I study World War II, it's almost like the most important aspects of World War II are before it starts, because this war should never have happened. And it's because good people did nothing that World War II even exists. So let's begin this. This first one's called The Folly of the Victors, which is uh, it's from a Winston Churchill uh, book, and I think it's a pretty good statement. In other words, you might as well say... The mistakes of those that had the authority and the power to keep the enemy at bay. So, if we're going to go back to World War I, and this is a map of Europe. You're missing a few pieces of it. You're, you know, the bottom portions of Spain and Italy, you can't see the boot down there. And Iceland's missing from the northern side. However, you're going to see Germany right there in the middle. And that's the way G Germany has sort of this... Uh, I don't want to use the word evolution lest you think I'm teaching evolution, but it's this ev evolution of shape and design. This is interesting because the United States has always looked the same to us. But when you study Germany, you're going to recognize that because of these wars, it is going to shape shift all over the place. So that's from 1914 through 1918. And then, sorry, my clicker's really having a tough time this morning. Uh, Germany in World War II, you're going to see the difference. I'm going to go back, see that. Look at the difference in shape. Now, part of that has to do with after World War I, there was something called the Treaty of Versailles, and Germany, looked at as the aggressor and the guilty party in World War I, was greatly penalized, and it lost uh, territory. And in the process, there is going to be a monster that is created. Now, when you look at the difference between that uh, shape of Germany, and far, sorry for all of the, those of you that are streaming this, or I'm sorry, getting this via podcast and are unable to see the, uh, the great uh, images that I have on the screen, I'm, I'm so sorry. We are capturing this via video, and hopefully we can turn this into a video series so you can all see that, that are missing that right now. But uh, if you look at uh, the shape of Germany in World War II, uh, it's, it has a distinct look to it that uh, I'll help you with what it, makes it, it looks like to me. 
And it's interesting because there's only one gap of time in history that it looks like this, and that is 1939 through 1945. And I tell you what, it is, it is strange because it, it, you cannot even say it a better way, but it, it looks like a dragon. It looks like a monster, right? And what's interesting is even its mouth is aimed, the way I put it, is aimed towards Czechoslovakia, is in that mouth. Uh, is that's where Czechoslovakia is, which is one of the, the key... Uh, tragedies uh, that is about to happen at the very beginning uh, of 1939. And so, uh, so here, uh, just to give you some perspective, uh, and so for those of you that are listening to this via podcast, I have three pictures of Germany up on the screen. One on the left is 1914, which looks like a helpless little horse, right? And then you have the 1939 Hitler version of it, which is very Yuck, okay? And then in 2020, which is right now, you have this you know, docile lady-looking uh, one. Isn't that just interesting, though? Okay, so that's Eric looking at maps, okay? For, take it for what it's worth. I don't know that there's any symbolic nature to that, but uh, it is pretty funny. <coughs> so Winston Churchill, uh, who was prime minister for most of World War II in Great Britain, uh, his perspective on what happened is very, very interesting. Crimes were committed by the Germans under the Hitlerite domination, which find no equal in scale and wickedness with any that have darkened the human record. The wholesale massacre of systematized processes of six or seven millions of men, women, and children in the German execution camps exceeds in horror the rough and ready butcheries of Genghis Khan and in scale reduces them to pygmy proportions. Deliberate extermination of whole populations was contemplated and pursued. It is arguable that the evil that was witnessed in and through World War II is hard to match because not only do you have Hitler, but you also have Stalin in Germany. And in, um, in Germany, in Russia, in Soviet uh, Russia. And in Soviet Russia, you're going to have around 27 million deaths in World War II. And so the extremes uh, that we're going to witness in this time, the evil, is very symbolic. And that's why I say, when you study World War II, you're going to create a great parallel with our spiritual life. There is a very tangible evil that is desirous to destroy, to devour whatever territory is left to it. And the same is true with your soul. If you leave your soul untended and unguarded, the devil will devour you. There is a great need to rise up and create a defense. By the way, it looks like we're out of uh, chairs in here, and I know we have more people coming, so I'm not sure what happened to our chair supply, but we might need to grab some more. So uh, I don't know if there's any one. I'm sorry to do that to you, but usually we have a pile back there, and for some reason they're all missing. <coughs> so Edmund Burke, at this time, many of you have heard of Adolf Hitler, and I'm not teaching on Adolf Hitler today. But uh, it's a very depressing topic to talk about Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin, by the way, who are two grand characters in the World War II landscape. But uh, one of the key questions that you could have is how did they gain such power and such strength? And there's answers to that. But what's extra shocking, you know, that someone like Hitler could even come into power and in a world, and even ironically, Germany was a Christian nation. So how could something like that happen in a Christian nation? I could almost, almost more clearly recognize how it could happen in America today, which seems to be a post-Christian or almost an anti-Christian nation, than I can in uh, Germany of that era. 
But Edmund Burke says this, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. And so one of the key things I want to bring out is the essentials of doing something in the spiritual life. You know, when you see God separate the twos, as you've heard me say many times, you have the goats that get separated onto the left and the sheep that get separated onto the right. In a sense, you have at the very end the separation of the tares from the wheat. What is the difference? What is God noticing? Well, tares and wheat look very similar, except for one produces fruit and one doesn't. Sheep and goats both go, one, one seems to have an M sound at the front, one has a B sound at the front, but they're very similar, right? And yet one is going to do something, as Jesus says, when the weak and the poor and the, and the uh, imprisoned and the hungry are in need, they do something, whereas this other variety doesn't. And so there seems to be an imperative that God is bringing into and baking into the very idea that we have as Christianity. He says, you as Christians have been given a victory. You've been given a triumph, but you must tend to it well. You must caretake for it. If you're a parent, you can't just assume that your kids are going to grow up healthy. You actually have to tend to your kids. You have to watch over your kids. And the same is true with truth in a generation. With your soul, it's true. All of these things, Christianity is an active engagement in the world in which we live to stand for what is right, to represent that which is true. And the only thing necessary, as Edmund Burke says, for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Evil it's funny, good can go into sort of a docile, suck your, sum, th- suck your thumb, how did I say this? <laughs> suck your, how did I, I said it really funny. <laughs> suck your thumb state. It can very easily go to sleep, whereas evil doesn't sleep. It is built to destroy, whereas good is almost like built to go to sleep. So it's, you just need to know that about yourself in the very beginning, that though you've been changed by Jesus Christ does not mean you are still holding your sword up high you can very easily drop that shield and sword and set it down. Winston Churchill, when he was writing in his book on the Second World War, said, it is my purpose as one who lived and acted in these days, first to show how easily the tragedy of the Second World War could have been prevented, how the malice of the wicked was reinforced by the weakness of the virtuous. Isn't that an interesting statement? How the malice of the wicked was reinforced by the weakness of the virtuous. You know, one of the things you're going to see if you study World War II, because it's extremely interesting because you can look behind the scenes and because the Allies actually took over and Italy succumbed and Mussolini fled and Hitler killed himself, you actually have the ability to get all their archives and all their communications. So you can actually study the mind of the enemy in it. Very fascinating, okay, if you're into that type of stuff. But what's interesting is this is an exact statement. He's going to go through in his book on the Second World War and actually show their thinking and how they watched France and Great Britain and how France and Great Britain did not want war. They did not want to fight, so they began to appease. Whatever you want so that you don't go to war, just tell us what you want. Just tell us what you want. And what that did is that emboldened the wicked. We shall see how the counsels of prudence and restraint may become the prime agents of mortal danger. How the middle course adopted from desires for safety in a quiet life may be found to lead direct to the bullseye of disaster. Leave it to Winston Churchill. He has a way with words. 
But those are some pretty powerful statements. You see, we have the same desires for safety in a quiet life. And so we, when I study Great Britain uh, through uh, the, the years preceding World War II, I feel like Great Britain. This Christian nation that knows that they have victory and Germany is defeated. We have the Treaty of Versailles. Everything is in place for us as Christians. We have the cross, we have the victory, we have the shed blood, we have the authority, we have the seated position. We have everything we need. But we don't want to have to go back into that battle again. If you've ever tasted the battle, you know what I mean by saying, God, could I avoid that for this next season of my life? Could I have a a really long stretch where I don't have to go through that again? And so I actually feel like Great Britain when I read about it because I've gone through some extreme battle moments in my life that have created trauma in my inner man, in my psychology. And so I have a tendency to be repulsed from certain things. It's like, no, I don't want to go there. And so I feel like France and Great Britain when Hitler is taking power because they see the evil, but they actually are going to turn away and choose not to look at it. You know, when you think about abortion in our country, very few of us want to stare straight at the issue. Why? Because if we do, it would mean we'd have to do something about it. And if we do something about it, that means we have to get uncomfortable. And if we get uncomfortable, just the dominoes start falling. So we would rather look sideways. We know it's there, and so whenever someone brings it up, yes, we acknowledge it and we say that is wrong. But do you follow what I'm saying? It's very easy to know that an evil is out there and to actually succumb to the desire for safety in a quiet life. This is the history of World War II. This is how Hitler gained domination. It did not happen because Hitler just rose up and was such a superpower overnight and everyone tried to stop him and no one could. This guy actually had zero power when he first started. And it's almost like we lent him power. Do you know that Hitler was, or Germany was stripped of a million pounds of military armament after World War I. Stripped, a million pounds of uh, military armament. And Great Britain and the United States gifted 1.5 million to them. We basically sponsored the growth of the German military machine because we felt bad for them. Gregorio, Greek word. And so in the New Testament, you're going to see this word wielded as a command. This is something that we are supposed to be doing. Sort of fascinating because if you've ever heard of some guy named Gregory, I'm guessing this is what his name would mean, right? Gregorio. To watch is what this means. To give strict attention to one's position. To be cautious regarding your foe. Isn't that interesting? To be cautious regarding your foe. Not fearful, Cautious, alert, watchful. This is actually something you're going to hear Jesus deliberately say. Are you Gregorio? Are you watchful concerning your foe? To stay awake and alert lest through passivity and slumber, calamity doesn't suddenly spring up and bring destruction. Well, there's a word for you. That's precisely the story of World War II. Right there. We were missing Gregorio. So Jesus Christ is going to use this word, and I underlined it for you, when he says watch and pray. So that word watch is Gregorio. So stand guard. Be aware that you have an enemy. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, 
but the flesh is weak. So there is the counsel of the king of kings right there to us. Do you recognize that the spirit is willing, but you have a dimension of your, of your body that actually desires to set down sword and shield. It grows tired. I had a thought last night when I was laying in bed, and that was if God called me to get up right now and pray, how would I handle it? And, and many of you that have heard me talk on that over the years, I've had that conversation with God multiple times, and it's weird, but last night I felt extremely tired. And so even as God was, you know, as I was having the conversation, whether it was God or not, it was you know, in my head, I was pondering the fact that that would be really hard right now. <laughs> and so I'm sort of notating that in the middle of the night that, wow, it's really hard to be Gregorio. The spirit is willing, but the flesh of Eric Ludi has a propensity to slumber even if God was saying, up, now. I don't like that, okay? That makes me feel vulnerable. And there is a need, and one of the things I've learned in my spiritual life, which is why I'm going through this, is as I've been studying World War II, I recognize my propensity to match the allied failure. I see it in me. And so that's why I'm bringing this out is because for me, this is like a life lesson. I must maintain sharpness. Yes, I just went through the war to end all wars, which means, I mean, just think, if you call the war the war to end all wars, what is your mental thinking? That should end all wars. There is no way we're going back to war. There is no way we can handle that. And that's what the devil's saying too. You can't handle that. You can't handle that. You can't handle that. And so as a result, we start saying, I can't handle that. I can't handle that. And we fall into the enemy's playbook. The Carl's bad ants. So I just got back from California. The Ludi family had a grand adventure down there. And uh, I, I don't know what the deal is. I came into the grocery store when I was first there, and I go, do you guys have a serious problem with ants here in Carlsbad? And this one lady, uh, she didn't really give me a satisfying answer because she said I just moved here is basically what she said. But she said, you know, they're, they're quite something, aren't they? And I don't know if it was just the place, because I've been down there many times, but there was something special about the ants, and maybe I should have given the address and said the <laughs> address in Carlsbad, ants. So we stuck all of our groceries in the pantry, and uh, if you left even a crumb, it was like the second day or so, but uh, there was a cutting board, and the cutting board was uh, slid in, and there were still crumbs on the cutting board, right? It was not cleaned properly. And so we saw these ants all over the counters, and we were like trying to figure out where they were coming from. We pulled out the cutting board, and they were just swarming all over bread? I don't know if it was sweetened bread. I don't know what it was. Why would they want bread? I, I don't know. But they were just swarming all over that. And they're like, oh, disgusting. There's something about ants that are just deeply disturbing. So then I get my cereal out, uh, and I pour it into my bowl. And uh, I had left that, you know how you can sort of tuck in the sides of the top, and you leave the plastic bag just a little open? Usually not a problem, okay? However, in Carlsbad, this was a problem. I pour out my cereal, and I poured out ants, okay? It was one of the, I mean, <laughs> I had the thought that, did I eat these before? <laughs> I mean, this is my treasured stash of cereal, too. The kids can't touch my one box of cereal. And this, my, they attacked my box. And so, I mean, I was just like, uh, oh, yuck, because they were like crawling out of my cereal. And so then I, uh, you know, went to the pantry, and I realized, well, we have an infestation. Anything that was not completely sealed had ants in it. 
Okay, so this is, this is just disturbing, right? And you have to recognize what I'm describing here. I'm talking about Gregorio, right? Watchfulness. You have an ant army that is seeking to sneak into anything that you leave unsealed. Boy, I tell you what, that is a great illustration. <laughs> because that's precisely what it was. I had to fight ants the whole time I was there. I mean, you should have seen the elaborate measures that Les and I went to. We had Tupperware bins for every single thing, lest the ants overtake. We actually emptied out the whole pantry, didn't stick anything back in the pantry the whole time because we were so disgusted. But we threw out tons of stuff that was infested with ants. I've never seen so many ants. This is in the middle of January. I thought ants hang out in June. I mean, what is this, January? And so, but it was interesting because an unsealed container was an ant-infested container. Okay? Does that uh, ring a bell spiritually for you? In other words, you have an ant colony that is seeking to get into your pantry. If you don't know that, that ant colony, if you take a break just for a couple days, you will have an infestation problem. Now, there's no, nothing that can't be done. I mean, we have our means. Like, less than I did actually clean the house rather extensively that was quite the uh, you could just imagine if you were to say uh, so ask the kids what was daddy's face when he was cleaning up the ants there's a certain face that daddy makes oh oh i don't like ants okay however there is a need and what you're going to see in the world war ii theater what you're going to see in our life is there's a parallel carl's bad ants it's really hard to give the parallel for us to understand that this is how does an ant smell Something that well, when uh, you can't even see, there's no ants in here. And then the next thing you know, they make it, they were making it up to the upper level if we left something in the trash can. <laughs> they were infesting it. Yeah, you may not want to go to that particular Airbnb next time you go to Carlsbad. <coughs> the Carlsbad ants. Paul the Apostle says, Watch. That's Gregorio. Beware, you have an enemy, guys. You do know that, right? And he is seeking to devour you. There's an entire ant colony that desires to infest your life. Stand fast in the faith then. So as a result, you cannot be soft around the edges. You must be sturdy always. I recognize you just came out of a trauma. I recognize you just came out of World War I. But you need to be on guard right now because that enemy will immediately begin to rebuild and mount its offenses against you if you set down your guard. So watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. By the way, I should probably let you know that I'm not anti-German, okay? The Germans are, are going to be a picture of evil in the entire World War II uh, illustration. I am German, okay? So I, I feel like it gives me a tremendous opportunity to speak clearly on that point. In fact, in World War I, if you've ever heard me joke about this, in World War I, one of their main military generals, his name was Eric Ludendorff, and my, gra my, mom, my, grandma, my mom's name is Obendorf. Her maiden name is Obendorf. My dad's name is Ludi. So if you combine them, it would be Ludendorf, right? And my name's Eric. Okay, so that's a bad thing. However, my middle name is Winston. So I'm sort of this combination. I'm like the great, great Britain staring at my vulnerability of being German. Okay, uh, it's like this funny combination, the guy that's standing in front of you. Peter the Apostle says, be sober, be Gregorio. Be vigilant, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, remember that ant colony? 
walks about or lingers beneath the foundation of the house like a roaring lion. That is mixing metaphors here. Seeking whom he may devour. Seeking Eric Ludy's special stash of cereal that, he may, that they may devour it. Okay? I don't know if you've ever had a special stash of cereal, but it's deeply disconcerting when the ants get it before you do. Key truth number one. Now, these are just fascinating meditation points, guys. A great victory can be gained only to be lost. I think that's actually somewhat shocking, even though it's obvious, especially even in the story of World War I. World War I is an extraordinary tale. If you ever study World War I, it is deeply disconcerting and an extraordinary tale of impossible victory. And the violence was quelled. And somehow Germany came under the, uh, the bar of justice and was tamed. And I mean, this is, it's an incredible story, right? A great victory can be gained only to be lost. What a waste of a great victory. Key truth number two. Though defeated, an enemy left unwatched is an enemy that can regain strength. Key truth number three. When Gregorio, that's our watchfulness, is absent, the enemy will take back what he deems lost territory. What you're going to see, the logic of Hitler and the German nation, at first is, we're going to take back what was stripped from us in the Treaty of Versailles. That is actually German territory. You unlawfully took it from us, okay? And so they're actually going to say, that's our territory. And then, but this creature, this, uh, this beast, this monster that you're going to see in World War II is not satisfied there. It's going to take every bit of the world if it can do it. Jesus Christ says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first, so it shall also be with this wicked generation. World War II, <laughs> Germany is swept clean. And then a greater evil enters into it than it had ever seen before. It's, it's a great tale. I'm not going through it in enough detail today to probably convince you of that, but that, that about says it. Dr. J.H. Jowett, really powerful quote here, guys. And we're taking this illustration of external physical battle and beginning to relate it to the soul. Evil never surrenders its hold without a sore fight. We never pass into any spiritual inheritance through the delightful exercises of a picnic, but always through the grim contentions of the battlefield. It is so in the secret realm of the soul. Every faculty which wins its spiritual freedom does so at the price of blood. Apollyon is not put to flight by a courteous request. He straddles across the full breadth of the way. And our progress has to be registered in blood and tears. This we must remember or we shall add to all the other burdens of life the gall of misinterpretation. We are not born again into soft and protected nurseries, but in the open country where we suck strength from the very terror of the tempest, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. The scriptures are going to train us to be soldiers. They're going to train us to be watchful. They're going to train us to be strong, to quit ourselves as men. So how do we as the body of Christ, when we understand, wait a minute, the devil's defeated. 
why do we need to fight? It's a really important question to recognize. As I said, I was teaching the, uh, the classic students, the week-longers, this last week at Ellerslie. I said, when Jesus says, it is finished, we look around and go, sure doesn't look like it's finished. Boy, your idea of finished, Jesus, is sure a strange one. It's finished in heaven. That which was needed to be accomplished is done in heaven. Now there is something that needs to be done down here. And so faith is the means by which that is done. We reach up into the heavenly realms to his finished work and begin to bring it down. But to do that is a fight and is a struggle. And there is an enemy that is poised against us. We have been given authority over him, but we must exercise that authority. Unexercised authority is no authority. And the enemy will play our lack of exercise against us. And he will come to destroy us if we don't hold the ground and keep the victory that we have been entrusted. Oh, how the monster can grow. So here's at least most of Europe. We're missing Iceland up in the top there. But we have Germany. I don't know if you can see the monster right in the middle there. Uh, remember how I showed you guys earlier? So anyone listening to this via podcast, Europe is on the screen. It looks really nice and green. I made it green for everyone. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to amplify Germany in the middle so you can see our monster there. Now this is in 1939 after Germany has devoured Austria, okay? And now it has become officially the monster. Uh, and so, now look at this next one, okay? I'm gonna go back and forth. This is where Germany was uh, in 1939 before it is going to invade Czechoslovakia, which is right in its mouth. And then it's going to invade Poland, which is actually what most people would declare as the start of World War uh, two, which is right above its nose, the monster's nose, that's Poland, okay? So look at what's going to happen. I think this is 1941 or 1942. All of that is going to be under Hitler's control. And so as a result, they're taking all of their military strength, all of their armaments, all of their military, like soldiers, and they're conscripting them into German's regime. It is becoming a behemoth that at certain points in World War II seems impossible to stop. There is no way that Great Britain, who was so weak, they had disarmed. Before the war, the big movement in Great Britain was get rid of all military strength. We don't want to fight, so let's get rid of, let's disarm. Disarm. They're disarming while Germany's growing. And so Great Britain, you can see it right across uh, the English Channel there, nice green next to Ireland, uh, they're in trouble, okay? They're standing all alone against the world because their great ally, France, is part of the German machine now. And that's where D-Day is going to happen, right across, well, I, I can't point to anything from way over here, but uh, hopefully you know your European map. But uh, that's, a, that's a bad state of affairs. Okay, this is what I'm showing you right now on the screen. Doesn't that feel like our world today? It's like the odds are set against us. We have, in a sense, disarmed. We... We feel bad about the power that we have as Christians. And, and we, we're somewhat ashamed of it. And so in a sense, we've disarmed. And we've set down our weapons saying, well, we don't want to be too aggressive uh, with this. I mean, we'll let everyone else sort of express their opinions too. There's one way of salvation. If you think about it, there is one means of solving this dilemma. There is light and darkness. And if light doesn't shine, and if it hides itself under a bushel, the darkness will overcome the earth. 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt, at the conclusion of the war, sorry to skip all the way to the end of the war here, we haven't even covered anything, right? Says, gentlemen, what should we name this war? Isn't that a fascinating thought to think that they didn't have a name for the war? And if you think about it, World War II is a very boring name. <laughs> so Winston Churchill, in his uh, very quick wit, responds instantaneously. The unnecessary war. That wasn't a very good British accent, but that's exactly what it is. It's the unnecessary war. There is an authority that the church of Jesus Christ has been given, and we find ourselves fighting unnecessary battles. There is a necessary battle, but there's a whole bunch of unnecessary ones that we find ourselves needing to deal with for lack of engagement, for lack of faith. Likewise, so many of our own battles fall under the same moniker. We often, through our passivity, end up engaged in a fierce and terrible, unnecessary war. So if you look at most of the breakdown of society, like I mentioned abortion earlier, when I bring up a topic like that, we have a tendency to look sideways as Christians. If I bring up the orphan crisis, and I were to describe uh, the fact that, oh, and this was what, 12, 14 years ago, that lesson I heard that there was 143 million orphans in the world, and that just in the United States, it was like 500,000 uh, foster kids. And, and I remember even when Christians would talk about it, like the leaders or the people that cared about this topic, they'd say if each church uh, in America did this, and I remember what it was, like took in one foster kid, it, we would have no foster kid issue in the country. Now, of course, easier said than done to coordinate such a movement, but it just shows you that if the church actually functions as it ought to function, it actually eliminates issues in our culture. But when the church wants peace, 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 wants rest, 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 wants a quiet life, and doesn't want to involve itself in difficulty, what's funny is the difficulty doesn't go away, it mounts. We don't want war. Never again, never again, never again. And they got the greatest war ever because of it. In other words, trying to escape actually isn't the solution. It's wielding the weapons of our warfare that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds that is necessary. The victory was gained. So we're going to have the Versailles Treaty. Uh, you're getting a little history. I'm not a historian, and I don't, I'm not going to pretend to be. I will give you a little history because you sort of need it if we're going to have lessons, spiritual lessons from World War II. But June 28, 1919, World War I concluded in 1918, and they're going to have the Treaty of Versailles, or the Versailles Treaty, signed. If you were to read that uh, newspaper, it is extremely fascinating. <laughs> but I'm, we're not going to do that. Uh, so we just know that there's a treaty that was signed, and the Germans had no say in this treaty. So they weren't even invited to the table. So that, if they didn't sign this treaty, did you know that they would be occupied by Allied troops? So they had a choice, either sign the treaty, which was a very, very harsh treaty against them, or they would be occupied by soldiers from the Allies, basically holding them at bay. And so they signed the treaty. The treaty was solely intended to make it impossible for Germany to start a new war. So what's the goal of this treaty? Disable Germany so that Germany cannot fight. Germany and France are like mortal, ally, or mortal enemies. They always have been. And so as a result, France took the lead in the Versailles Treaty and basically said, we're going to kill Germany. We're going to destroy their military operations so that they cannot breathe again. 
Germany had to reduce its armed forces from 6 million to 100,000 men. Okay, that's a massive shrinkage. It had to get rid of its submarines, which were a huge problem in World War I. It had to dispose of its military aircraft. It had to liquidate most of its artillery. It had to shrink down its naval forces to merely six small battleships. Germany also had to give back French territories it had taken and occupied during World War I. They also had to relinquish large territories of its own to Poland and other neighbors. And it had to give up all of its colonies to the League of Nations. Listen to this. In addition to all of this, Germany had to pay back the massive World War I reparations. They just pay back. It's like, oh, since you're responsible for the war, this is the damage you did to the nations, the allied nations. So you need to pay it back. Could you imagine this nation that is totally destroyed, right? I mean, it is, it is a mess of a nation. Germany, at the end of World War I, has to pay this back. The damage is done to allied countries by German troops. This sum was enormous. Listen to the first payment. The first payment was 132 billion gold marks, and that was just the first payment. So in other words, you're basically making it so that this nation cannot rebuild itself into a strong superpower. Because if it's paying off its debts, I mean, you know, the United States begins to loan it money so it can pay off its debts. It's the most irrational situation. It gives it military strength because they feel so bad for it. This poor Germany. <laughs> it's just fascinating to see how this all happened, but this is the Versailles Treaty. It's done. Germany cannot rebuild, right? On paper, there is simply no possible way Germany can become the strongest military power in the world over the span of the next 20 years. But alas, that is exactly what has happened. So what you have in 1939 is impossible. There is just no way, 20 years later, that Germany could be that powerful. And yet, if you were to dig down into the reason why, it's because good people did nothing. They did not want to fight. They looked sideways. They saw the issue. They all knew Hitler was out there. They, you know, they'd heard some of the rumors, but they didn't want to think about it. No, 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 not thinking about it, not thinking about it. They did not want to deal with it. Meanwhile, Hitler knew they were singing their little da-da-da-da-da, don't want to think about it, song, and he knew they would do nothing. He betted on the fact that they did not want war. And as a result, he moved forward knowing they wouldn't stop him. And everyone in, in all of his ger ger generals are like, you can't do that. They're more powerful than you. They don't want to fight. Watch. And of course, if you've ever studied uh, Hitler or people that write about Hitler, they would say, he was demonically inspired, that he had a demon inside of him that was counseling him in how to do this. And you have to admit, pretty brilliant. So let's look at another victory that was gained. We'll go back to the cross, Passover day, 33 AD. It's very similar to the Treaty of Versailles in, in how we're linking this together, is the head of the serpent was crushed. The power of sin destroyed. The ransom paid, the captive set free, the old man crucified, death defeated, the grave conquered. The enemy is set at bay with no more ability to harm and harass. On paper, there is simply no possible way the devil should have any say in your life. On paper, hey, look at it on paper. In the Bible, it's like, all right, I'm reading it. And even greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. No weapon fashioned against us is going to prosper, guys. We've been given the authority of the name of Christ Jesus. The shed blood of Christ and all of its efficacious power has been entrusted to us. We simply must swing it. And if we swing it, the devil has no ability. But alas, he sure is a loudmouth, isn't he? 
Catherine Booth has a quote when she was studying the book of Acts. This is what she said at the conclusion. I was thinking while I was reading these passages, what if we could erase from our minds all knowledge of the history of Christianity from the close of the period described in the book of Acts, and then look into the book of Acts, sit down and try to calculate what was likely to happen in the world. We would most likely expect very different results, a radically changed world as the outcome of it all, a system which started with such power, under such promises. Sorry. My, my clicker is like deciding to not work here. A system which started with such power, under such promises and declarations on the part of its author and producing as it did in its first century such gigantic and momentous results. We would have thought, if we knew nothing of what has intervened from then until now, that the whole world would have fallen long ago to the influence of that system and would have been brought under the authority of its great originator and founder. I say from reading these acts and from observing the spirit which moved the early disciples that we should have anticipated 10,000 times greater results. And in my opinion, this anticipation would have been perfectly rational and just. What happened? How did we lose such a victory? And how did we give away the world? The world that was being swept under the power of the gospel, how did we give it away? So how does it happen? It happens when good men do nothing. Why would good men do nothing? Think about why you sometimes do nothing. You know what God is asking of you, but you don't act or you don't speak. I mean, we could bake it down to the smallest level of a human soul that is in crisis under the Hitler regime, if you want to say it that way. I don't mean white supremacists. I just mean under the control of darkness. They're in your life, but you choose to do nothing because to do something would take you out of your rhythm for the day. It would be a distraction, and it also could lead to them saying they don't want your help and saying some harsh things to you. It could mean that someone sees you talking to this person and hears that you're a Christian and then they think sideways about you. Whatever it is, we have our varying reasons of why we back off from doing what we know to do. Some good reasons for Great Britain to not do anything. These are the reasons, and they're good. Great Britain couldn't financially afford another war. I mean, do you know how much they lost in World War I? It destroyed, they, they were the financial center of the world before World War I. Then in World War I, it switched to the United States, New York, Wall Street. They lost their position in the world because of World War I. Last thing they want to do is fall even further behind. It's, it's, it's extremely expensive to run a war. The idea of war was abhorrent. The romance of it was totally gone. Before World War I, war was romantic. And you'd go off to war and come back and your sweetie would kiss you. And, oh, everyone would you know, have parades for you. And it was just noble and honorable. Not after World War I. Something fell to pieces. And no longer was it romantic. The nation of Great Britain hated war. They did not want to see it again. That was supposed to be the war to end all wars. We don't even want to discuss potential conflict, the British people cried. We're covering our ears. If you even brought up war, you were called a warmonger. If you brought up what Hitler was talking about, you were a fearmonger. How dare you bring up these things? We're trying to focus. This is a time of peace. That ended all wars. We will not think about war again. The British people want peace, declared the politicians. I'll be voted out of office if I even talk about the threat of Germany. And that's exactly true. If you tried to speak about Germany, you had no position. 
Hitler, uh, what was it? Uh, Winston Churchill was out of office for 11 years prior to, to him getting the prime minister position because I guess he was a warmonger and a fearmonger. No one wanted that in Great Britain. Winston Churchill says, this was one of those awful periods which recur in our history when the noble British nation seems to fall from its highest state, loses all trace of sense or purpose, and appears to cower from the menace of foreign peril, frothing pious platitudes while foemen forge their arms. Sometimes it's not that good men can't do anything. It's that to do something would be uh, really hard and inconvenient for those good men. The insipid power of human personal vows. Never again. I will never have that happen to me again. I will never be embarrassed like that again. I will never be deceived like that again. I will never go there again. We make personal vows. We need to be very watchful of how we handle our soul. My own strange list of unconscious human vows. Beware a Haitian adoption. I mean, even the concept. If you brought up, hey, there's some cute kids down in Haiti and we were wondering if you could adopt them. Whoa! I mean, immediately, I'm going to be like Great Britain hearing about war. It's like, whoa! Because of the trauma that is there. So, in other words, I have a flag in my mind that says, beware. This will cause problems in your life. If you dare try and take on the system in Haiti, there's a lot of darkness down there, right? And so, hey, let's leave that be. I'm not going to deal with Haiti. I'll let someone else deal with Haiti. Don't ever go to that Thai restaurant again. I know this seems like a very extreme difference, but I have it. You have flags where I had a very traumatic experience ordering pad thai in this one thai restaurant in Fort Collins, and it's bad pad thai. And I could describe it to you, but you would recognize there's just a lot of emotion there, right? So if Leslie ever says, hey, there's a thai restaurant, have we ever gone to that place? Yes, and we will never go there again. <laughs> never again. Don't ever trust someone that looks like that. Have you ever had it where someone in your life either betrays you or you had a knife in the back and you get around someone that has the same tone of voice, the same look, and you have a certain repulsion to say, you know what, you go your merry way, I'm going mine. And it could be perfectly fine, but they remind you of something. Don't be duped by that stunt again. Praying like that will lead to serious challenge. I, I've had, I mean, each of these I can relate to. Now, hopefully I am not controlled by these things, but wow, we are vulnerable. We are vulnerable to being Great Britain and France before World War II. Oops. What do you have in... Oh, I skipped a quote. Sorry about that, guys. One of the statements that uh, Winston Churchill says is that Great Britain had Passchendaele and the Somme. Those are the two great battles that they lost more men than any others in their bones. And as a result, when they would even hear about war in Europe... It was like they had something so deep in their bones that caused their bodies to rattle. What do you have in your bones that you need to lay down at the foot of the cross? Because each of us has different things, trauma points that are actually hindering us. And I would say even like our fear of getting involved with things that actually need good men, if you want to say it. There's no, no one good but God. We know that, right? But a good man is what a Christian Man or woman is. They are the ones that carry the goodness of God. So therefore, if God lives un in us, those that God lives in should stand up and do something. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. 
We do not need to let this defeated foe put us under his thumb ever again. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So as we go through this series, my desire is not necessarily to make you an expert in World War II, even though, who knows, maybe you'll get so fascinated with World War II, you will become an expert. But it's to show you that the history of God's creation and humans is cyclical in its patterns. We all have a tendency to be made of the same stuff and to make the same decisions. And the decisions that have been made in previous generations are ripe for the picking for us to repeat them. In fact, I would say in many ways in the American church, we are exactly in this same spot doing the exact same things because we actually don't want to fight. We don't want to need to stand. We don't want to get our hands dirty. We don't want to have to jump in that foxhole. We don't want to get dirty with this battle. And as a result, the devil is playing us like a fiddle because he knows we don't want to. And so as long as he knows we have come to the place where we don't want to, he will keep taking steps forward. What he fears, you know that we could have stopped, and even in Hitler's own mouth, when I give you the quotes, it's extremely fascinating. And he even said, if France had even stood up with the slightest resistance when I took the Rhineland, we would have retreated hastily. If they had done anything when I, when I came against Austria, boom, would have, wouldn't have done it. If we had done anything, that's incredible. The devil knows the power of the shed blood of Jesus, but he also knows if we are unwilling to wield it. He watches us. And he knows that in these situations, this situation, this situation, this situation, we're not using the weapons of our warfare. And as a result, he takes a step forward. For each of us, let's freshly pick up the weaponry that we've been given and remember that our God is victorious and that he has assigned us the job of standing strong to quit like men in this generation. Father, we need your courage, we need your boldness, Lord, we have a propensity to repeat this history, to allow a monster to gain control simply because we as the church of Jesus Christ do nothing. Lord, may we not crave peace so strongly that we fail to realize that there is a time to stand for the weak and the downtrodden. There's a time to resist the enemy. Lord Jesus, may we be ready to fight the battle that you have assigned us to fight. We know that our weapons, or that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but our battle is against principalities and powers. Lord, we must remember that this is our assignment. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.